Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Central. How you doing? Welcome to Tech Radio, the number one Irish tech podcast bringing you news in tech from around Ireland and across the world. Remember, you can hear Tech Radio on air with RTE Friday evenings or anytime you like with your favourite podcasting app from Apple, Google or Spotify. Of course, keep you up to date daily on all things tech with hourly updates, daily newsletters as well, which you can grab for free with our compliments at techcentral.ie. My name is Dusty Rhodes. This is episode 843 and I'm joined as ever by my, you're my radio husband, Niall Kitson. Okay. Is that like I've been been calling you editor-in-chief and and, and alluding to you being somewhat like um, Joe Biden. (laughs) How, how's uh, how's radio husband? You, you're 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 flummoxed now. You I don't like know what Joe. to say, do you? <laughs> we all guy. love Joe. Listen, let's get straight into the news of the week. And firstly, um, Justice League is kind of just one of those DC comics movies that oh my god could have been so good. Uh, was so disappointing. Yeah. Uh, there's a whole story where we may see a good resolution to the end of this. Uh, Tell me everything. Yeah. Now, I'm all about fair fights. And I think that Justice League versus the Avengers was not a fair fight for various reasons. One, Marvel had years of a cinematic universe to build up versus DC's, you know, kind of stodgy Man of Steel and Batman v Superman. Um, and Justice League was sort of, it was meant to be the apotheosis. It was meant to be the coming together of all the DC talent. And for various reasons, it was a disaster. Uh, it ended up flopping as well. I mean, the break even on it was $750 million and it made $650 million, uh, give or take. And ever since it was released and did badly, there has this clamour for uh, the original director's vision as uh, Zack Snyder to to appear in some way, shape or form, because as we know, Snyder had to leave the um, the project roughly midway through post-production, I think it was, uh, for the suicide of his daughter. And Joss Whedon stepped in and finished what was argued to be a very, very different film. Uh, the original plan actually was for it to be split over two movies, sort of Harry Potter slash Avengers style. Uh, that didn't come to pass. It was whittled down to a 120 minute movie on direction from the from the studio. And what was released was fairly underwhelming. Now, HBO Max have taken up the mantle next year. We will see a revived Justice League movie directed by Zack Snyder uh, split into two parts. It will be broadcast in four one hour segments. Um, hopefully a lot of people will be made happy by this. As I said, you know, I believe in fair fights. Um, I think the Avengers have had some fantastic movies. I want to see Justice Justice League get a good movie just to show that DC can do it right. Um, Personally, I'm a fan of the Nolan Batman movies. That's kind of where I sort of checked out the DC for the moment. But hey, hope springs. Anyway, that's stupid geek news for the week. And and fingers crossed that uh, when it does come out, it will be in the cinema and not just on the TV or on Netflix or whatever happens. Uh, HBO, HBO... Max, which is, uh, I think that's their on-demand thing. 
you see those things really you've got to go to the cinema and see it on the big big screen yeah, with the proper Dolby 7 point or 17 or 34 point whatever sound it is uh, these days uh, I want to talk about Apple because Apple's now out in the wild and we've got a lot of hands on information which is just whoa stunning but and there's always a but okay uh, but firstly uh, you've been playing with the Xbox and we had a great uh, lowdown last week on the uh, the new Xbox which you have mm-hmm. been using yep. but more good news for games fans this week yeah now i don't want to quite take this you know say you know pinch of salt territory but i think there's some interesting findings in this study according to the oxford internet institute which of course is in the university of oxford playing some kinds of computer games can actually be very good for your mental health so what they did was it's an interesting study they i think they trialed something like 700 people there on it uh, actually, I think it might have been a lot more than that. Anyway, what they did was they took two kinds of games. They took Animal Crossing. Uh, yeah, sorry, it was over 3,000 players that they that they did this with. So that's a fairly powerful study. So they took two games. One was uh, Nintendo's Animal Crossing and the other was Plants vs. Zombies Battle for Neighborville. Now, Plants vs. Zombies is sort of a, a shooter um, and you develop points and achievements and that sort of thing. And it's, it's kind of... Uh, I guess, standard video game gameplay these days. Now, they didn't look at any sort of hardcore FPS or strategy games or anything like that. They boiled it down to games that pretty much anyone can can sit down and play and enjoy. So they're looking at the two styles of gameplay. So EA was Plants vs. Zombies. Uh, Nintendo was Animal Crossing, which is a, a breakout hit this year. And they found that people who played Animal Crossing for four, roughly four hours a day actually had an improved sense of well-being. People actually felt good about it. And perhaps one of the reasons for it is that Animal Crossing relies on you developing sort of a digital version of yourself, living on a digital island that you build, and you develop credits by doing things for other people. It's a very gentle game. You know, it's it's like, you know, you are rewarded in, uh, okay, money and other stuff, but you, in kindness as well. You do kindness, kind things for people, and it comes back upon you. Isn't that nice? And, and this is the big game story of the week. Wouldn't wouldn't it be nice if instead of doing this in a virtual world as part of a game, people uh-huh. just did this in like real life? I know. Maybe wouldn't that when, be amazing? Maybe when we come out of lockdown in 2029, <laughs> we'll just appreciate each other better. Oh, you're full of good news, aren't you, Niall? <laughs> <laughs> listen, listen, uh, let, let, let me talk about Apple because I literally have not been able to sleep all week. Uh, this is true, actually. I'm surprised at, mm. you know, your WhatsApping ability, but also your uh, your love and affection for this device. Which which one it, are you looking at particularly? The MacBook la- Air? All, all of them. All of them. All, all of them. them. All right. Because uh, the, the announcement last week, it was kind of, OK, they're going to announce new processor. And then they came out and then we had it on the podcast last week. And, and as you know, we were very impressed. We were. Uh, and then we thought there was a dark side and the whole dark side is uh, transferring the software over to the new uh, ARM uh, processor. And that yes. is going to be a, a, a bit of a drag. However, uh, the Apple Mac and the and the Mini and the uh, MacBook Air are all out in the wild now. And several key reviewers have had their hands on it for the last week. Mm-hmm. All right. We're, we're only able to get our hands on it uh, in the last day or two. All right. But they've had it for a week and they've been running it. And across the board, everybody is like, they're not just giving it a good review. They're giving it like a wow review. Okay. There's one guy who I know is particularly negative about like everything. He's worse than me. Okay. <laughs> and he wanted to give it a 10 out of 10. 
which is which Except- is bad personal policy. <laughs> you only ever re- give something nine out of ten. There's always room for improvement. Well, this this is it. He said the only thing that stopped him was the webcam is still 720p, which is a bit, mm. you know, surprising. And then the other thing is surprising is that they've made all of these uh, iPhone apps um, work on the uh, on the on the MacBook Air and the MacBook Pro and whatever. All right, mm. yeah. but, but there's still no touch screen. Now this is this is a thing that Apple have consciously <laughs> avoided. They have avoided touchscreens. And when I had to think about it, I was like, yeah, well, yeah, why, why, why bother? Because mm. I have a touchscreen on my laptop. I never use it because I don't want to smudge the screen. Yeah, all right. Uh, no, I think in certain, there are some cases where a touchscreen is just amazing for a, for a laptop or a desktop computer. And I think the fact that they're enabling all of the iOS apps to run on your Mac, if, if that's what you so wish, one day it's coming down the line that it will be touchscreen. It'll be the usual Apple thing. You know, like you said, when we come out of lockdown in 2027, Apple will be going, now you can control by just touching the screen. Isn't it amazing? Do you, and we'll do you have think an we're on the way going. to a unified Mac OS? Oh, God, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Mm, yeah, certainly looks like it, doesn't it? Like, mm, but I was thinking about that as well. And possibly the OS, but what about the, the, the user interface will be different because they are different animals, aren't they? Mm, yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Like your phone and your tablet is one thing and then your laptop computer, or your desktop computer is another thing altogether and they're used for different things. Yeah, we do have different expectations, all right. So maybe, yeah. the, you know, kind of the coding and everything, I would say, in the background will probably be the same, but the actual graphical user interface will be different. However, hmm. Apple is out in the wild and... Um, yeah, I was right not to be able to sleep all week long because the results are are just stunning. Have you have you listened to any of these? I haven't. No. So you 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 got to hit me up with some figures here. Okay, some benchmark tests. All right, mm. benchmark tests on the uh, Apple uh, MacBook Air. All right, because that's where that's where you get the most improvement. All right, mm-hmm. uh, on the current version with an i three processor in it. Okay, doing the benchmark test on a single core, you're getting a score of eight eight nine. Mm-hmm. All right, when you do with the M one processor, one thousand four hundred eighty eight. Wow, one point seven times faster, almost twice as fast. All right. That's a pretty good start. Now, that's a really good start. Now, when you look at uh, the M1's performance on the MacBook Pro 13, all right, mm-hmm. it's very similar. It's a, uh, 1,500 and something, okay? And on the Mac Mini, it's 1,500 and something as well, all right? Mm. The point to remember here is that the MacBook Air is now almost as powerful as the MacBook Pro 13. Yeah. Yeah, now, that is just stunning in itself. And lots of people are kind of going, well, why would I, why, why would I bother? Yeah. Well, listen, uh, th- here, let me give you another, another fact that will completely blow you away, right? Mm-hmm. That's only single core, right? If you're going to use all the cores and do a multi-core uh, uh, bench test, all right? Mm-hmm. On the MacBook Air, again, the i3 at the moment will uh, come up with a score of 1,628 using all the cores, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, on the M1 processor... 7,479. Wow. Sold. Cha-ching. Four, exactly. Four and a half times faster. Now, I don't think in all of the decades that, you know, we've been doing tech that somebody's come around and said that's now five times faster or four times faster. Yeah. No, never happened. 
It, it, it's unbelievable. And again, the MacBook Air is up there very, very similar to the MacBook Pro 13 or to the Mac Mini, all right? Mm-hmm. Um, that score of 7,500 is still not as good as the MacBook Pro uh, 16-inch. All right, okay. which is still an Intel processor. Mm. And now that is that 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 machine starts at what is it three grand or something? Two, two seven, I think, for the base okay. model. You, you're talking about three grand, okay? Mm. That's for an i nine processor, uh, and the benchmark score on the big sixteen inch Super Pro, blah blah blah, daddy daddy of them all, nine thousand two hundred something, right? Mm. Compare that with seven and a half thousand. Yeah. yeah, on a MacBook Air, on an Air for twelve hundred quid. That's that's hard to argue at that price point, isn't you it? You can't argue with that price. So that's why I'm kind of like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. Then uh, here's where we get into the software. OK, and this is where it kind of gets murky. Mm. Well, I, I, this is this is where you will see me kind of, you know, all of a sudden not rushing out to buy it. OK, this is where reality kicks in. This is where kind of reality kicks in, okay? And here's the genius of Apple, all right? Video rendering, okay? Now, this is the absolute bane of anybody who does video editing, all Mm. right? Because, you know, well, firstly, when you're applying any effects or any of that, you've got a a wait time there. Uh, And then when you're trying to render down the finished product, then you've got a long wait time, okay? So, for example, a 10-minute 5K uh, video render uh, on a MacBook Pro 13, um... 10 minutes worth of video, it would take you about 18 minutes, maybe just under 19 minutes, all right? Okay. So 19 minutes with Final Cut Pro, which is Apple software. Mm. Now, Final Cut Pro running on the M1 has gone from just under 19 minutes to six minutes. Wow. Three times faster. Unbelievable. But here, and here is the but. Okay. When you, if you want to use non-Apple software for your video editing, as many people do, all right, mm-hmm. so Adobe uh, Premiere Pro is kind of the the thing, or uh, DaVinci Resolve. Uh, but Adobe Premiere Pro is the one that's being measured at the moment. On the MacBook Pro, it would have done it in 33 minutes for 10 minutes of video. Mm-hmm. On the M1, it does it in 21 minutes. Mm. So it's kind of like only one and a half times faster, whereas if you were to use Apple software, it would be three times faster. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Now, in all fairness, Adobe have not, you know, rewritten their code so that their software will run natively on the M1. It's going through this uh, uh, um, um, uh, translator software. Yeah, it's gone through Rosetta. Rosetta too, yeah. Um, so that's probably what's clogging it. And Adobe say that uh, certainly with Photoshop, you know, there's a couple of little bits of Photoshop that will run native, but the whole program won't. And it's going to be next year before it will. Mm-hmm. But I think when Adobe eventually get around with their creative suite to uh, having it run on the M1, we'll see much better figures. But I somehow uh, don't think they'll ever be as good as Apple's. No, no. Uh, and the, mm. Apple see their hardware and their, their software as being one product. Anyway, so, you know, it's it's up to other people to play nicely with Apple, not for Apple to accommodate anyone else. Um, so, of course, their own software is going to work better on their own uh, hardware. Of course. Exactly. Exactly. So now I'm kind of I'm in a I'm in a thing where I reckon my I'm going to hold off. All right. Because firstly, I want to see the, the, the software actually be written for this M1 processor. Mm hmm. And here's where it gets scary, all right? Okay. Uh, my video editing, um, even my audio editing, uh, so it's fine. They will work. I'm, I'm absolutely 
superbly confident they will work. All right. But particularly when the audio side of things, I've got a lot of uh, plugins, which well, is separate go. software made by separate manufacturers. Yeah. And it itself was an investment of thousands. Mm. And all of that is now going to have to be rewritten. And then, of course, I'll have to buy it afresh. Oh. It's like literally having to buy a new studio. And that's the bit that's really kind of getting me going. Ah, yeah. damn it. Because yeah. this is exactly what happened the last time when uh, Apple moved uh, over onto the Intel processor and that I lost a load of plugins. Mm. Uh, and maybe it's just too much. But um, two things that I'm thinking at the moment is, number one, I'll probably just get a Mac Mini for the crack. With a crack, okay, because you got seven hundred right. euro flying around. Um, seven hundred euro is a relatively decent budget for a very decent computer, regardless. For desktop, All right. yeah. Okay, uh, and I do know that my video editing will definitely uh, benefit running running on that. Yeah, fair enough. I would be like a lot of pros. In that I think a lot of creative pros uh, who would heavily use Apple uh, equipment are going to just hold back. All right. Because where you would see the investment from us is when the MacBook Pro 16 moves over to the M1 mm. or when the Mac Pro moves over to the M1. Now, if we're seeing these figures, all right, and this is first generation, if we're seeing these figures on the Air, the Pro and the Mini, can you imagine what an M2 is going to do when it goes onto a Mac Pro? Yeah. Well, no, but yeah, I see your point. <laughs> yeah, it, it'll blow even that out of the water. Mm. So that's where I'm kind of like, you know, kind of I would love to get these now. Oh, yes, please. I want that speed. But uh, I'm just going to have to. It's, it's, it. it's, it's the rule of it's the rule of two. Never get the first generation of anything. Oh, abso- absolutely not. So I, I think somebody summed it up uh, brilliantly. They said, um, if you're a pro and you're working on it, it wait, wait. Or buy a mini or something just to just to mess around with. Um, but if you are um, if you're looking for a new MacBook Air for for granny or for your missus or for one of the kids or whatever it is, you'd be buying one of these things for mm. perfect or yeah. for, you know, if you're just surfing the Web or you're doing a bit of, you know, kind of a, a documentation or, or, or writing, whatever. Mm. You know, perfect for all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so no, I have to say, uh, last week, I'm blown away by the announcements from Apple, even though it was a little bit vague, as Apple usually are. It'll be three times more powerful than the nearest PC equivalent, which exactly you mean by what? Nobody knows. Uh, But now that it's out in the wild and we're actually seeing those stunning numbers coming through, it's like, wow. But as you say, temper it, never go with the first iteration of something, always wait for version two. And on that note, I think we shall leave it there for this week, Niall, as ever. Thanks for keeping us up to date. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. Because we're all involved with tech, people come to us with their tech problems. And we've all had that situation where you're trying to explain a complicated idea to somebody who hasn't a clue what you're talking about. Or even worse, isn't even interested to begin with. Daphne Chung is a data scientist with the Walt Disney Company and encounters this problem every single day in her work. However, over time, she has picked up a few tricks to explain tech work more clearly. Niall Kitson sat down with her as she explained why every job she does have to have a beginning, a middle and an end. 
So Daphne, we hear all the time that we're living in a world that's that's data driven, that we watch films that are data driven, that, mm-hmm. you know, all our marketing decisions made towards us are when it comes to retargeting or micro targeting is all based on on data that, you know, it is sort of meant to be these little sort of dispassionate factoids, which is just mm-hmm. nice. But your work is to do with data and storytelling, which sort of gives the impression that, OK, we with story, we have this sort of dramatic intent, which doesn't necessarily marry up with, mm-hmm. you know, facts and, you know, factoids and individual pieces of data. So how do you find that happy medium in taking facts as storytelling units, but without the uh, the luxury of shoehorning yeah. them into something with a, 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 a premise from, from the get-go? Yeah, no, that's that's so funny that you mentioned that. It's absolutely true that storytelling or our day-to-day idea of what storytelling is, especially on screen, is so different from the idea of of data, right? Data is is fact. Data is telling you something that is known or supposed to be true. And the way that I've achieved that medium is really by utilizing those those same principles and, and breaking them down, breaking down those storytelling principles and saying, okay, what exactly is storytelling? And what are some of the, the principles and the structures to basic storytelling? Strip away all of the fiction, strip away all of the, the characters and the elements and um, what does it come down to? And stories are really just patterns. They're, they're patterns that help people to digest ideas and to digest concepts to then be stored in their heads and maybe even re-explained or shared with people around us. Um, so I came up with sort of like a structure for myself uh, that I think can effectively communicate the value of, of data that I have derived from a particular project from a particular product, uh, or if I have come up with some sort of an algorithm, um, how do I then use a storyline or a structure to then explain that value to someone who may not even necessarily be a a technical contributor? You know, Uh, the reason why this is so important is because oftentimes you'll have to almost market what you've done to someone who doesn't necessarily understand what you've done. Um, and so that's, that's kind of where this concept of uh, finding a narrative in numbers comes from, at least, at least from my end. So some of the really interesting books that have been written about stories say that you know, stories, no matter how you decide to lay them out in a two act structure and a three act structure and five mm-hmm. and seven, if you really want to push the boat out, yeah. there's always this uh, accidental beginning, middle and an end. That's right. As she shows up, whether the middle is something you miss in a, a two act play or mm-hmm. something that you're uh, explicitly brought through in uh, in regular sort of stories, be it a novel or theatre or on screen. Have you found that in your own uh, work in discerning patterns, is there a natural beginning, middle and an end? Oh, yes, absolutely. And I think that's that's really at the crux of it, right? That, you know, every basic narrative arc is the same. I even say that about Disney movies, oddly enough. Um, we, we tell a lot of stories in our Disney movies, whether through superheroes, Disney princesses, even Lucasfilm with Star Wars, right? They're, they're stories. But at the end of the day, they're all narrative arcs that are honestly fairly similar. We're telling stories about the same values, the same virtues, the same um, types of people 
through different mediums. And that's kind of the way that I see storytelling and data science. I've found that there's absolutely a structure. For instance, when I'm talking about a new data science product or, you know, a new algorithm that I've written um, to my teammates, I always start by talking about my business problem. I always start with that underlying context and, and what it was that that catalyzed this particular project in the same way that you don't ever start a story without kind of like a rising action, right? Um, and then in the same way, there's always a climax. There's, there's always sort of a peak in the story. Um, and in a data science story, that would likely be kind of that surprising X factor insight that you managed to find or... Um, you know, in, in some of my projects, it may even be uh, the amount of money I could be saving our organization with the particular product that I've built. So, um, yes, absolutely. In much the same way, there is a structure to every story that you tell in data science. So you've mentioned there uh, or you've alluded to some of the stories you actually tell within your work. So uh, one of the things that is often found in studies of memory is that stories are tremendously powerful at solidifying ideas in people's minds. Is this something that you have found in communicating what you do in developing an algorithm in, in your own work? Oh, yes. Um, when when communicating kind of like the development that I've, that I've done or some of the projects that I've worked on. Um, one of the reasons why I think my work is so memorable is not because it was amazing or it was super innovative, although I, I hope it's those things too. But, um, I, you know, honestly, I think it's the fact that I was able to explain it well, and I was able to communicate it well in a way where, um, someone can store that information in their head, uh, and then be able to share it and maybe regurgitate it back to someone. So um, I, I think one of the key points there is that you need to not only make your work digestible, but also make it memorable. And in my work, I obviously, I don't work at a tech company. So it's, it's difficult because I can go on and on about uh, an algorithm. Um, but oftentimes, the people I'm communicating with are not they're not data scientists. They're not data analysts. They are not technical people at all. Sometimes they're, they're even creative. So they don't work in that same realm um, that I operate in. So you always run that risk of them either not understanding what you're saying or not being able to remember any of what you said. So um, I definitely find that the storytelling piece is what contributes to making your work memorable and digestible by, by the audience member on the other end. And of course, you want to avoid any element of Chinese whispers as well, where your narrative can be picked mm -hmm. up and completely That's reinvented right. or misinterpreted. <laughs> That's right. Especially when you're talking to a group of people who maybe, you know, I'll be talking about something like a regression algorithm and, and, you know, I'll be talking to people who don't have any clue what that is. And then they'll go, sometimes I overhear them, they'll go to another party and they'll try and uh, explain that to the, the other person or the next person. And it's really funny and they just like completely butcher it. But um, you can't blame them. You know, not everyone operates in the same space and it's up to you to, to kind of be an educator in that way. Yeah. So taking that idea of the audience as being such an active participant in, in writing your story, do you find that that's a, a consideration when you sit down to actually go, OK, mm -hmm. right, uh, what story am I going to use to get yeah. across this particular piece of information? Yeah, I almost like to call it like you're, you're putting on a different hat every time. Um, a, a piece of advice that an executive had actually given me when I first started at Disney was before you even write or do anything on PowerPoint, storyboard exactly what it is you're going to say. Um, you know, think about your audience member. 
think about what his or her role is and what his or her objectives are in that particular role. Um, Something that I like to remind people is that, yes, you're on the same team as many of these people, and you're probably going to be presenting internally most of the time, but that doesn't mean that everyone's there for the same reason. Everyone has different objectives. Everyone has different priorities. And to really drive action and speak to someone's emotions, you have to speak to their priorities and their objectives in their particular role. So I like to call it putting on a hat, putting on a lens, um, and then from there... Um, I let that guide me in writing my story. When I'm storyboarding something, I'll sit down and say, what is it that makes this person tick? You know, what is it that this person is going to care about in relations to the the work that I just did? So for instance, an example of that would be, um, you know, presenting something to an engineer versus an executive. Um, an engineer's objective is probably learning how to do their job better, um, faster, stronger, an executive's objective would probably be how to save money, but they're two very different objectives. And you, you certainly can't tell the same story to both people. So, um, it's kind of the example that I'll typically give is that you can work on the same team with 10 different people and they'll have 10 different objectives. And the only way to drive any action out of all 10 of them is to speak to their, their objectives personally. And of course, as a, as a data scientist, of course, you're, you're, end goal is to deliver insight by looking at, at raw material. So again, how do you choose the building blocks that y- you want to use in telling your story? As, as you say, when you go to an engineer, you've got a very different hat on your head than, than when you go to somebody in the boardroom. So how do you communicate uh, the value of your own data, of your own work, which I know is something that's still considered sort of um, magical or a realm of magical <laughs> thinking to, to an awful lot of people. Yeah. Well, the first and foremost is I always, like I said, there's a beginning, middle and end. In the beginning, um, it's important to not only talk about your business context and, and really what drives your problem solving in that particular project, but something else that I do is I always start with um, some kind of sentence that speaks to the direct impact I'm about to, to have um, on the business. So, um, you know, to give a more practical example, let's say, for instance, I'm like I said, I'm speaking to an executive and I want him to know that what I'm about to do is going to save him a ton of money. So in, in my um, business problem statement uh, slide, I'll typically put a sentence that says we are currently spending X when we could be spending Y and here is how. Um, so really what I do um, in any presentation is I have a section on on impact. Um, I always end, start and end with, with impact on the business that I'm about to have with this particular product or algorithm that I've built or, or data uh, insight that I've found. And I think that's where a lot of data scientists go wrong or fail is that you can build the most complex, intelligent, deep learning algorithm. Um, but if you, if you don't know how is it's going to impact your business, your organization, it has virtually become useless. I walk into a lot of meetings where I'm sitting with some of my peers and they go in and they explain everything they've done. But uh, when you're talking to a group of people who don't do what you do, they don't know what to do from there. They don't know what to do with what you just built. Um, And it's up to you to tell them um, the value of your work and what's going to happen once it becomes, you know, uh, productionized in an environment. I guess I'd just like to sidestep away from data science for the moment and talk about some of your other interests uh, that you're doing uh, at the moment as well. You're also a tremendous advocate for uh, women uh, in Disney. If you'd like to tell us a little bit about your work there. 
Sure. Yeah. I have been volunteering with women at Disney since, um, I, I think I was six months into my job. <clears throat> so this was one of the first opportunities outside of data science, um, at Disney that I got to participate in, but oddly enough, I, I am still working in an analytics capacity. Um, but I was an analytics lead for quarter two of last year and it was all well and good. It was fun. I was working on analytics around our events, our demographics, our reach. So uh, we put together a lot of programming that supports women in the workplace at, at Disney. Um, our theme last year was uh, talent mobility. So we were putting together events and resources that ensured that the women at the company had you know, opportunities to find their dream roles if they weren't currently in their dream roles. I've since been asked to become the analytics lead for the broader organization. Um, I think we have something like 3,000 some members uh, all over the world. And um, we connect regularly over events, even, even during COVID. And um, we were in the midst of planning a Women at Disney Summit for the first time last year um, that was really going to focus on talent mobility and, and providing resources and connections for women within the company. But that had since been put on hold. So um, yeah, it's a little bit about what I do uh, for women at Disney. It's, it's honestly been the highlight of my experience at Disney thus far to know that the company is so invested in a in a cause like this and of course a brand that's so uh, synonymous with yeah. uh, with family <laughs> and, that's right uh, you know with with uh selling stories that are inspirational and uh, yeah. and accessible uh which I, I guess speaks to um your your own inspiration in in using data Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. I always tell people I've learned so much, even though I don't work remotely close to to creatives, I've learned so much in watching Disney movies and being around Disney people and feeling that positive energy. I always tell people we're just we're just manufacturers of happiness. That's what we do. And that was Daphne Chung, a data scientist with the Walt Disney Company, chatting with Niall Kitson. Daphne is a featured speaker at the Analytics Summit. I get all the details at Analytics institute.org forward slash summit that's it for our show this week do remember you can get the lowdown on all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates daily newsletters and more at our website techcentral.ie and of course you can listen to us each week online or Fridays on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio One Extra until next week from myself Dusty Rhodes and from Niall thanks so much for listening and have a great weekend get tech radio subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie Tech Radio is produced by DigitalAudioProductions.com. Tech Central.